Hi, this is Richard Lee from Short Films Teachers Love. I've taken this opportunity to provide the uncut interview with Sam Morrill. I thought um, pretty much all of what he talked about uh, was useful, particularly to filmmakers interested in hearing from Vimeo. Uh, I do need to apologise for some of the some of the levels. It's it's a little bit rougher than what I would normally put out, but uh, if you can get past that, it saved me a little bit of time and uh, means that I can do this and get on with the highlights version, which I will also put up. Check out the the links, and I hope you enjoyed the full length discussion with Sam Morrill from Vimeo. Let's just start with um, perhaps an introduction. Tell me, tell me who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Sam Morrill. I'm the director of curation at Vimeo. So what that means is I lead Vimeo's in-house curation team. So we are a team of five full-time curators that uh, spend most of our time looking for great videos on Vimeo and uh, supporting and promoting those videos across the site. Mm. That. I think I read somewhere your description is it's an insane task, and I imagine that's true. I mean, this the amount of content that can come from anywhere of any quality, how do you even begin to, to cope with that and deal with it? Yeah, so it's, it's an insane and arguably impossible task mm. uh, to curate a site like Vimeo because, as you know, Vimeo is an open, share, open video sharing platform, so... We literally have tens of millions of videos uploaded to the site every year. There's obviously no way that we can watch all of those videos. Um, so it's incumbent upon my team to find and develop processes for uh, finding those videos that stand the best chance of being awesome and then watching them and deliberating as a team and deciding which ones we want to promote on Vimeo. Mm. So what what's your basic approach then? How do you... Give me some day-to-day things you do, some weekly, you know, some longer strategy things that you do to do that. Sure. So the flagship channel on Vimeo for the best videos is the Vimeo Staff Picks channel. Mm -hmm. So when a user comes to Vimeo for the first time, um, the first videos that they're seeing promoted on the homepage are Vimeo staff picks. Mm. Um, we currently feature about four staff picks per day, which uh, translates to about 1,300 per year. Mm. Um, and we try to feature kind of a wide array of uh, genres and styles in the staff picks channel. So it's a combination of, um, of dramatic shorts, comedic shorts, as well as music videos, animations, action sports videos. It really runs the gamut and it's supposed to give the viewer, you know, a really high quality cross section mm. of the sorts of videos that you can find on Vimeo. Mm. Um, in order to find those videos, uh, we have a variety of different techniques. Um, first and foremost, um, we look to the Vimeo community. So everyone on the Vimeo curation team follows thousands of creators. And this is just, um, you know, lists of creators that we've developed and uh, built up over the years of uh, working at Vimeo as well as just using Vimeo. So some of the people on my team were, you know, kind of power users on the site before they started working officially for Vimeo. So I personally follow about 2,500 different creators on Vimeo. And so one of the first things I do, yeah. So one of the first things I do when I come in every day is I, I, you know, go into my feed, I see what those creators are uploading Mm -hmm. and I kind of scan through that list. I see what looks promising and I kind of, uh, will flag certain things to, to check out. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, you know, we, 
we don't want to rely wholly on those lists of creators that we're following because then, you know, we would only be featuring the same, you know, 5,000 creators over and over. And one of the most exciting things about curating for Vimeo is discovering new talent and mm -hmm. discovering new creators that we weren't familiar with previously, but have just popped onto the site and have amazing work that we want to share. So to do that, um, we rely pretty heavily on the trending feed on Vimeo. So this is something that's accessible to, to everyone. So when you go to when you go to Vimeo for the first time, below the staff picks, um, there will be a, a what's trending feed. And that gives you kind of a snapshot of the most popular videos on Vimeo at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And so the way that that feed works is it is algorithmically sourced, but there's a layer of curation on top of it. So it's not it's not like a raw feed of the most popular videos on Vimeo based on plays or likes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's, um, these are videos that are, that are popular on Vimeo that have kind of been, uh, that have been looked at by the Vimeo curation team. And then we push those to the official trending feed that, that users can see. Mm -hmm. So we look, we look to that every day, all day to see, um, what is organically trending on the site, because that way we can bring new creators into the mix that we weren't previously familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then I would say the the two other most important sources for discovering staff picks and the best videos on Vimeo, um, one of them is uh, third-party curators, so independent curators on and off of Vimeo. So there's a really great selection of channels on Vimeo that are curated by people who don't work for Vimeo or just, you know, independently uh, curating either just for fun or maybe for another website. Um, so, you know, an example of that would be uh, Boom, uh, which is... Uh, it's the word boom spelled with, let me think, uh, seven O's. And it's uh, curated by this guy, Jeff Hamada, who's based in Vancouver. And that's like one of the best channels on Vimeo. Um, he also has a website by the same name, mm -hmm. but he has a pretty active presence on Vimeo. But then you have Motionographer, you have Short of the Week, you have um, week. Nowness, Director's Notes, Curious Brain. There's a, there's a bunch of these these channels that are really popular. So we look to them every day to see what they're featuring. So you, you kind of... You you're crowdsourcing your own curation. You're actually looking mm -hmm. to other curators to support what you're doing, which is great. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's about finding, you know, other curators mm. in the space whose taste we trust. Mm. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, it's a two-way street. They're, they're looking to staff picks as much as we're looking to them. Mm. So everyone's kind of scratching one another's backs. But that said, everyone has their individual taste. So, mm. you know, independent curators will regularly feature stuff that isn't necessarily right for Vimeo curation and vice versa. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so we look to independent curators quite a bit. And then I would say the fourth... Um, the fourth area that we look to the most is the film festival world. So as of about five or six years ago, we started regularly attending all the major film festivals in the world, um, going to their short screenings and seeing the short films that they were featuring at their, at, you know, at their festivals. Um, and that's become a bigger and bigger source over time of Vimeo staff picks. Mm. And, and I think that's one of your new things as well as it, um, You've called it premieres at Vimeo? Yeah, so we have, so a, so we have a program yeah. called um, Staff Pick Premieres. Mm. Um, it's a program that we officially launched in October of 2016 with the short film Curmudgeons, um, which was directed by and starring Danny DeVito. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, so that was a program that we launched in in October. It was kind of something that we were already doing, to be honest, but this was the first time that we kind of gave it a name and really started promoting it in any real way. But essentially, it goes back to what I was saying about um, attending film festivals and bringing shorts over from the film festival world. That was something that you know we started doing several years ago. And initially, it was kind of a challenge to convince um short filmmakers at, at these film festivals to bring their shorts onto Vimeo because, you know, back in 2012 or whenever it was that we really started doing this, there was a bit of a stigma surrounding online distribution of fest quote unquote festival quality films. Yeah. Um, the internet was kind of seen as beneath the festival world, beneath theatrical and broadcast and the more traditional modes of distribution. And then in addition to that, a lot of film festivals had very strict rules that prohibited filmmakers um, from releasing their shorts online or from, I should say, from submitting to their festivals if their shorts had shown online. So a lot of filmmakers, in order to preserve their festival eligibility, they wouldn't put them online. Mm. Now, that has changed quite a bit. Um, when did that change? Because I, I read you, you, you'd said something about that and it was like one of the top tier film festivals said, actually, we're going to break that rule and we're going to accept films that have been online. When did that, when yeah. did that crossover start to happen? So, you know, there's obviously hundreds of film festivals or thousands, if, if not, around the world. So it's, it's hard to say who exactly precipitated that change. But if you if I had to say who it was, I would I would guess that it was Sundance um, because Sundance was one of you know, Sundance is obviously one of the most high profile film festivals in the world. Yeah. And they were definitely one of the first festivals on the short side to say we don't care if your short has already played online. You can still submit to Sundance. Mm. We're interested in your film. And so that Yay. was a very radical <laughs> change. Yeah, totally. Mm. And it was, you know, really appreciated by not just Vimeo, but by the filmmaking community at large. Mm. And so I think that that sort of opened the floodgates because once Sundance did it, mm. it, it, was, it became very hard for other festivals to justify their, their rules because filmmakers were saying, hey, look, Sundance is, is allowing online videos and online short films to submit to their festival. You know, why can't you? And so, you know, most festivals at this point have either publicly, you know, stated, you know, we don't care anymore, or they've just kind of quietly loosened up their eligibility requirements. There's only a few festivals out there that are still pretty adamant about you keeping your, your film off of the Internet. Um, but, yeah, so a lot of that is really uh, due to Sundance, I would say. Mm-hmm. When did... Um... Um, oh, there's a number. That, I, I keep thinking of questions as you're talking because I should, I so should many... to be honest. I, I, didn't, I never, I didn't get to finish my what I was saying about Stat Pick Premiere. So if you don't mind, sure, I'd yeah, like yeah, to yeah. Just kind of talk about that program mm-hmm. a little bit more. So mm-hmm. in light of those changes, yeah. In light of Sundance allowing online, you know, videos to be submitted to Sundance, and us spending years going to all these festivals and interfacing with filmmakers and convincing some of them to, you know, bring their shorts online. Um, and then feature them on staff picks, um, we got to a point where we had been able to demonstrate, you know, really great results for these filmmakers where, you know, they were, you know, releasing their short films on Vimeo and getting audiences that were, if not, you know, in the tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And so when you consider that, you know, even the best uh, short films on the festival uh, scene maybe get seen in front of 5,000 people uh, during the course of their festival life, uh, which is, you know, a lot for a festival short. Um, 
to be delivering an audience 20 times that size is, is really striking. Mm-hmm. And so I think it more and more filmmakers started to take note of the fact that their peers were going this route and were maybe showing at, uh, you know, a top tier film festival and then bringing it online not not long thereafter, mm-hmm. releasing on Vimeo through Vimeo staff picks and getting, you know, a tremendous audience. Mm-hmm. So it, our task over the years got easier and easier in terms of convincing filmmakers to release with us. And so we decided, you know, we've gotten to this point where we felt confident that we could release a top tier festival short every week, all year long. And so that's what Staffing premieres is. So it's a weekly series where every Wednesday we're releasing a top tier short, largely sourced from the festival world, although not exclusively. There are you know several examples of short films that never played any film festivals that we've done staff pick premieres for. And those we're actually really excited about because it's like the, with those films, they're just skipping the festival scene entirely and they're going straight to them. So uh, you know, nothing against the festival world, but for us, that's really exciting that, you know, we're becoming, you know, a f- the first choice for a lot of these filmmakers. Um, so, yeah, so Staff Pick premieres, we launched it in October with Curmudgeons, uh, the Danny DeVito short. And since then, every Wednesday, we've released, you know, a really great short film on Vimeo. And, you know, these films are as diverse as the Staff Picks channel. So, you know, they're, some of them are uh, drama, some of them are comedy, some of them are horror. There's some documentaries in there, animations. Um, we've done an action sports piece. Um, so we're really trying to, you know, keep an open mind in terms of, you know, what can be uh, a staff pick premiere. Mm. And one of the other really exciting things about staff pick premieres is that we have an open submissions process for it. So with regular staff picks, there's no submissions process. Um, although I can definitely get into tips and tricks to kind of get your film onto the curation team's radar. Mm. We don't have like formalized submissions process for regular staff picks, but for staff pick premieres, we do. Mm. So any film that has played in competition Um, at an Oscar qualifying event within the last two years. And there's about 200 Oscar qualifying events and they're all around the world, which is why we chose to base it off of that list. Um, Any film that, 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 that falls into that category can be submitted for consideration for a staff pick premiere. And all you have to do is email premieres at vimeo.com for more information. And we have a submission form that, uh, that we link out to when you, when you email that address. Um, so yeah, so I encourage, you know, anyone who's listening, um, who's had a film play at one of these Oscar qualifying events over the last couple of years to strongly consider submitting. We consider everything that gets submitted. Um, and it's been a really, you know, valuable source for us, uh, for the staff picks channel more, more broadly, because sometimes, you know, something will get submitted and maybe it's not right for staff pick premieres, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, we're happy to give it a Vimeo staff pick and, and that can be just as good for the filmmaker. So that's, that's, Provided you've actually made a film that's been in an A-list festival, so you, you you would do that first and then go, hey, mine, you know, mine made it to Cannes or whatever. You should take a look at it. But do you get people short circuiting that and saying, my film was just fantastic. You should take a look. You know, is there a? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. absolutely. I mean, so you know, we like I said, you know, we we go to a lot of film festivals, so that's like really where we're doing most of our our face-to-face interactions with, with filmmakers, you know, on my team this year in 2017, by the end of the year, we'll probably have gone to somewhere in the ballpark of 30 to 40 film festivals around the world. Um, now the whole team doesn't go to every one of those film festivals, but we'll have one or two representatives at all of those events. Um, so what ends up happening is, you know, we're, we're having a lot of contact with the filmmaking community, we're giving out our business cards. People are, you know, 
forming relationships with our team. So we, we get we get sent stuff pretty regularly. Um, and then, but even for people that we haven't necessarily met in person, um, people reach out to us via the Vimeo messaging system. I can tell you that everyone on my team um, regularly checks their their messages on Vimeo, even though we can't respond to all of them. We do receive notifications whenever we get a message and we're, and we're looking at those. So that's that's like one of the most basic ways that you can kind of submit your film for consideration for staff picks. Yeah. Um, but I'd say an even better way is to just kind of try to drive engagement on your video, like share it with your friends and family, share it with different communities online that might be interested in the subject matter or the style that you used in making um, the video. And that way, you know, maybe it'll gain some traction on Vimeo organically. And like I was saying earlier, if it gets into the trending feed, then you know, it, it will catch our eye. Um, in addition to that, I, you know, I highly recommend that everyone shares their, their short films and videos with all of these independent curators that I was talking about. So there's lots of websites that regularly feature, you know, great short films and videos that we're checking on a daily basis. And, you know, if you can get your film onto their radar and they, yeah, and they support it on their website, then it's automatically on the Vimeo creation team's radar as well. Yeah, yeah. So what what's your general advice then back to the uh, the question of online or not online? You know, there's still a case for not going online straight away. So what, what do you say to filmmakers about that? I think it really depends on what your goals are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if your goal is to monetize your short film mm -hmm. or to win... Uh, lots of awards, be they festival awards or, you know, something like the Oscar, um, then you're probably better off keeping it off of the internet for at least a little while. Um, to, you know, because there's all sorts of eccentricities and, you know, uh, technicalities in terms of qualifying your film for these awards. And I know filmmakers that have had quite lucrative festival runs where they were just winning lots of awards at different festivals, which oftentimes have some sort of cash prize mm. and they can make money that way. Mm. In addition to that, you know, if, if you want to sell your short film to European television or do some sort of theatrical release, then yeah, it would behoove you to keep it off of the internet because distributors don't like that. Mm. However, if you want your film to kind of serve as a calling card for your career to demonstrate that you know you are capable as a director and people should hire you for future jobs and bigger projects and you're just trying to get the most exposure possible from your short then online is absolutely 100 percent the way to go mm. and as for short films i don't think that there is a better platform if i may say so than vimeo i, I don't <laughs> think that there are other outlets to be honest out there that deliver the kind of audience that we do for really serious high quality short film. So when I say serious, I don't mean necessarily dramatic. I just mean intellectually serious, uh, you know, shorts that take the craft seriously, take performances seriously and are really well put together. I really do think that Vimeo staff picks is, is kind of the gold standard for those sorts of shorts online. Yep. I do too. And I, and I don't say that just because I'm talking to you, but I, I, I do, I agree with you. And I think, I don't want to get into a YouTube versus Vimeo argument, but but there is a, there is obviously the scale factor, um, and you know I've heard different stats about the number of viewers and 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 I think what Vimeo has done as has grown the brand reputation. You know you've got the reputation of being the place 
that is important for quality, for that you appreciate film culture and film development and, and all that sort of stuff. But I do worry sometimes about the, the sort of bubble effect of Vimeo. So in a sense, you're talking to film lovers, you're talking to a culture that appreciates film. And and I straddle this world where, you know, I love film. I went to film school, but I feel like sort of a film evangelist where I I know I have to get out there, out of my sort of film land comfort zone in order to go out and reach, you know, the non-converts of, of film lovers, you know. And that's where I go to YouTube because I know that I'll get lots more viewers. And I, in fact, you know, talking to a, film, a few filmmaking friends, I said I was going to speak to you. I said, you know, what do you want me to ask? And they said, you know, well... How come when I put stuff on YouTube, I get, you know, a thousand, thousand views and on Vimeo, I get, you know, it's, it's a fraction of that. So what, what's, I suppose that's the, the sort of gut level problem that, that you have to face. And, and how do you answer it when people say that to you, just in terms of views and numbers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of cliche to say this, but it's probably a question of quality over quantity at the end of the day. Um, now, there's no doubt that we as Vimeo can and should, <clears throat> excuse me, do a better job creating tools for our users to build audience. And we're definitely doing things uh, to that effect. And I think we're making sh- making strides in, in that regard. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a few things to kind of consider um, in terms of differentiating between those two audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with YouTube, you know, if, if you upload your, your video and yeah, it gets a couple thousand views, Generally speaking, in my experience, uh, two things. Um, the, the quality of the engagement beyond just the, the play count tends to be a little disappointing. Um, obviously, you know, people will sometimes talk about the, the quality of comments on YouTube and other platforms and compare those to, to, to that of Vimeo. And I think that there's definitely a, a real difference there. That's not to say that there aren't quality comments on YouTube, because I certainly think that that situation has gotten better in recent years. Um, However, um, I do think that it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, a thousand plays on YouTube are not the same as a thousand plays on Vimeo. Mm -hmm. So some of that is just practically speaking, um, uh, you know, historically Vimeo hasn't uh, had autoplay. Mm -hmm. Um, So to get a thousand plays on Vimeo, it meant a thousand people were actually clicking play on your video. Whereas to get a thousand plays on, on YouTube and other platforms, it was just a thousand people had kind of landed on that page, whether or not they actually watched the video, mm-hmm. unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, our audience is different. I mean, v- Vimeo was designed as a tool set for video creators and for filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And that by and large still represents the core of our audience. Mm-hmm. So, when you get 20,000 views on Vimeo, you're, that's 20,000 people who by and large are in some way connected to the film industry. Mm. Are, if, if, they're, if they themselves are not professional filmmakers or work in the film industry, they're, they're you know, people that just love, love cinema, love film, and are you know, cinephiles and just interested in this sort of content. So I would, so I would argue that it's just a better quality audience. Mm. And from the perspective of a filmmaker who's trying to get work and get noticed in the industry, mm. that really pays dividends because when you get a Vimeo staff pick, you're basically your 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 short is basically getting broadcast to if not the whole industry, obviously it can't be the whole industry, but mm. a, a great many people who work within the industry, and that's a really valuable opportunity mm. for filmmakers. And it's I think it's great that we've created this space for the film industry to come 
to without all the noise to cut out all the you know all the noise of you know quote unquote web video and the sort of stuff that is more generally associated with Facebook and YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, mm. and really just dial down and focus on high quality mm. you know videos that you can't really find elsewhere and have serious conversations in the comments about these videos and really. Uh, a level of appreciation that you don't find elsewhere. Mm. And and the big one that, you know, always stands out is the no ads line, you know, mm. that that's quite a a unique thing. And and I, you know, I have wondered about that, about um, you know, I've read that you're you have a film appreciation background, but you're also interested in the, you know, the business of filmmaking and how things can continue to go. And I know that Vimeo's I guess business model includes, you know, you've got pro accounts, you've got some paid for content, which there would, you know, certainly be a cut of that. There's, you know, is is there enough in Vimeo's ad-free environment to keep Vimeo strong and growing, in your opinion? You know, is that is that basically the sources of income in, in the business model? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, Vimeo Plus and Vimeo Pro and Vimeo for Business represent our creator tools business, Mm -hmm. um, which has been the cornerstone of uh, Vimeo's business model since we since we launched Vimeo Plus back in, I think, 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was about a year before I started at Vimeo. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's proven to be not just a, a resilient a reliable business model, but a growing business model. Mm-hmm. So our subscriptions continue to grow. Um, so that is what keeps Vimeo ad free, mm-hmm. um, is, is really Vimeo plus and pro. You mentioned Vimeo on demand mm-hmm. that too is representing a growing share mm-hmm. of Vimeo's business model. So, um, for those who are not familiar, Vimeo on demand is our direct distribution platform where anyone with a Vimeo pro or Vimeo for business account can, upload their, their videos and sell them directly to their fans. Um, so it's a marketplace, not unlike iTunes, except you don't have to go through an aggregator, um, to get your, your videos published on in the marketplace. And it's much more flexible in terms of how you set the price, Mm -hmm. geographic restrictions. It's all set up as like a self-serve solution for selling your videos. Mm -hmm. And unlike the the competitors out there, it's a, it has a really favorable revenue split for uh, creators where, um, you know, after credit card transaction fees are taken out, um, you take home 90% of the proceeds and Vimeo takes 10%. That's pretty good. So it's a really, yeah, it's a really attractive split for, for Mm. video creators. Mm. Um, unfortunately, Richard, I am getting kicked out of this room, but I'm (laughs) going to go find another room. Okay. Um, and, uh, we can, I'll just, I'll just stay on the line. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I won't hang up. Okay. Okay. All right. And I'm back. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. One last thing. I don't want to. I don't want to flog the the comparisons with YouTube too much. But there, there was one other thing. Uh, sorry, just check this one. I'm used to having this conversation, yeah. so it's, <laughs> sure it's all are. good. <laughs> sure you are. Um, look, just the other thing. Um, you know, later this year, I'm going to the first of. Um, YouTube's uh, VidCon in, because they're coming to Australia, which is kind of exciting. And, um, you know, it, it did occur to me, you know, sometimes I've got I've got two daughters and, um, you know, they show me what they watch and, you know, sometimes they say, oh, Dad, you'd like this, you know, because this, this is something kind of arty and it's a bit film-like kind of thing. And I think, am I, I sort of feel I'm being marginalised because that's the quality films that I think I've raised them to watch and appreciate – they kind of put that in a, in a sort of a special basket as, 
sometimes they watch it, but but they like the stuff that's just on YouTube, the you know the vloggers, and there's kind of this whole other world opening up. You know the BuzzFeed videos that you know it's it's almost replacement television. They don't watch TV anymore, like I did right. when I was growing up. But they watch all this stuff that is just video online, and and there's sort of this authentic space of people that at any level can get on and make their own programs and it doesn't need to be a film, it doesn't need to be, you know, this this just plethora of all this stuff that you don't need to be a cinephile or someone that appreciates good filmmaking that is really watchable and really engaging and there's all this talent that's emerging that I see that is not really on Vimeo. So I sort of, mm-hmm. part, part of this is a fear question, I suppose I have, you know, uh, are we kind of compartmentalising, you know, short films and, and video makers into something that's a bit sort of elitist in that way? Do, do you get that sense? Do you know what I'm asking? I'm not, it's a... Yeah, no, I know, I know exactly what you're asking. Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot and mm. recently, you know, I think the best way for me to kind of distinguish YouTube and Vimeo in a way that I, I, I don't mean in any sort of uh, derogatory sense mm. is I, th- I really think of YouTube as on-camera talent and Vimeo as behind-the-camera talent. Uh. I think that that's really the easiest way to distill the difference between the two platforms. That's, I hadn't and, thought about that before. That's a good distinction, yeah. And with regards to your kids' viewing habits and, um, you know, this new generation of kids that are growing up and the stuff that they like to watch, I think the million-dollar question for me is, are they still going to want to watch webcam vids when they're 30 years old? Mm. You know, when they grow up a little and, you know, the world gets a little more complicated and maybe they're looking for some stories to kind of shed some light on what's going on around them. Mm, mm. And I'm inclined to say no. Mm. I'm inclined to say no in the same way that I don't watch, um, you know, I don't watch, uh, I'm trying to think of stuff that I watched as a kid that, uh, mm. that I would, you know, I, I used to, for example, like my generation, we were watching uh, TRL in, on MTV, mm. you know, Total Request Live. Like I look back on that and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like how, like all the hours that I wasted watching that crap, but that was what my generation was into at the time. Mm -hmm. And we grew up and we moved and I'm sure that there were adults back in, you know, the nineties that were looking at TRL and I'm sure some of them even worked on TRL and were like, (laughs) I can't believe these kids watch this crap, but we did. And they were probably, and those adults back then were probably a little concerned this generation was going to grow up and was just going to want to watch countdown video shows for Mm. the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't really the case. Um, You know, my generation has grown up and, you know, we we like going to the theater, some of us, and Mm -hmm. watching stuff on, obviously on Netflix and HBO and Vimeo and all, you know, all the streaming services that are available to us. But, you know, this is like highly produced, high quality, you know, for the most part, um, you know, great, you know, cinema that we're that, that a lot of us are watching mm. and that hasn't died in spite of some questionable viewing habits that you know we went through as as adolescents <laughs> so you know i i yeah I, I wonder if this this phenomenon of pewdiepie and just webcam videos and mm. you know prank vids and all, all this stuff is is really going to translate mm. to these these viewers when they 
they get a little older, I'm inclined to say no. Yeah. And I think that that's where, I think that that's where the behind the camera talent becomes more important. And here's the thing. I, th- I think that a lot of the YouTube personalities have big careers ahead of them as actors, as, you know, media personalities, Absolutely. no doubt. Yeah. Like some, you know, th- th- we're going to get some news anchors. I'm, I have no doubt in 10 or 15 years that got their start on YouTube. And that's already kind of happening. I mean, you look at the young Turks, they've kind of emerged as like this, this, this media player, but, um, but yeah, I, so I think that I think a lot of on-camera talent that, that I think you know I think it stands to be reason that you know a YouTuber will one day win an Academy Award <laughs> as much as, as as many groans as that might elicit from some of the more you know cinema purists that are, that yeah. are listening to this. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that that's out of the question. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen people win Oscars already that came from all sorts of you know strange backgrounds that you know you never would have expected to mm-hmm. to, to someday win an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, oh, uh, I think we you. may have just cut out. Are you there? Yeah, I'm back. Oh, you're back. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that that's my read on the situation. Mm. Um, I yeah, I I'm not too worried about it. Um, but yeah, I th- I think what will end up happening is a lot of the directors that are popular on Vimeo are going to start working mm. with on camera personalities that are popular on YouTube, and they're going to create the next generation of, mm. of Hollywood. That's mm. I think that's kind of the way it's going to work. Yeah. Do you see Vimeo as, as kind of then, and again, this is this will be the last of my comparisons, but I almost, and this is a positive one, I, I almost see Vimeo and Staff Picks as like a sort of a, a Netflix of independent filmmaking and video production. Would you kind of put it in that category or, you know? The, well, when you say Netflix, do you mean in the sense that you can stream it online and, you know, on your Apple TV or... Um, in the sense that you go there going, I don't actually have Netflix, but I know a lot of friends do and they go, if I'm, if I want to watch some good quality stuff, TV series or whatever, um, I'll go to Netflix. I think the same about Vimeo, like, you know, but for shorter content, you know, I, I wouldn't go for Vimeo for longer form stuff or, you know, well-established actors and series and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of the headspace that I have for Vimeo. Yeah, I mean, if we're analogous, it's be, you know, if we're in any way analogous to Netflix, I would say it's, you know, Netflix has become the go-to for streaming longer form content, be it series or uh, or feature films. Mm-hmm. And I would say for the audience that loves short films, which is a considerably smaller audience than what Netflix is dealing with, um, I would say Vimeo and Vimeo Staff Picks is the go-to platform mm. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, other than that, um, you know, I struggle to see that many similarities in that because, you know, Netflix is obviously, they're licensing all of that content. Um, yeah. You're paying a monthly fee to access it, whereas we're not licensing anything and it's all available for free. Yeah. Um, but from a question, from a, from the, the standpoint of quality, mm-hmm. Yes, I do think that we're similar to Netflix, but I also think that we're similar to HBO in that regard and similar to Hulu and Amazon. Mm. Um, the stuff that you find on Vimeo by and large is well produced. And if and if there's anything that distinguishes Vimeo from other video sharing platforms, it's the production quality for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, enough of the comparisons. Um, <laughs> let's get, let, let, let me ask you more about the curation stuff because I, I find that fascinating. Um, 
the you know some people think you have the dream job of you know watching lots of stuff and and just finding great but but there's a there's a weight of it isn't there you know even when i'm trying to find some good stuff I, you know you can spend a, a couple of hours and you kind of go i still didn't find some good stuff you know yeah. tell, tell me about the downsides of being you know being paid to watch stuff <laughs> um the downside perhaps is maybe which is also its upside is that it's never ending yeah uh, you know yeah. you're never going to find that last great video on vimeo it's just yeah. it's just they're going to keep coming and mm. so we have to be there to make sure that we're on the ball and we're finding mm. um these these shorts and videos that are that are really great on vimeo and making sure that they get seen that's mm. like a real you know duty that we have to honor mm. um yeah in terms of the downsides uh I think the hardest thing is just, um, and this this applies to just watching shorts in general. I find when you go to short screenings, it's like you're constantly switching gears. You're going from something really dramatic to something really funny um, to something that's like kind of interesting or something that's experimental and requires you to think a little bit more. And th- having to squ- switch gears mentally that much can be really exhausting. Mm. So, th- so from an emotional standpoint, it's 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 a little exhausting. Mm. Um, from a sheer attention span standpoint like, and, you know, maintaining focus as you watch these short films, mm-hmm. um, that can be, that can be a challenge as well. And I know that shorts programmers, um, for all sorts of entities. So lots of, you know, film festival programs that I, programmers that I know struggle, uh, similarly where they're just watching thousands of shorts a year mm-hmm. and, you know, and you really want to give everything that you watch a fair shake because this is the, you know, the collective work of a whole team of people that poured their heart and soul into this project. Mm-hmm. And it feels really unfair to them to just be like, you know, half asleep at your computer, sort of watching it, sort of checking Twitter. And mm-hmm. like, I really, really, really um, put a lot of energy into, you know, just maintaining focus and, and giving giving films the, the attention that they deserve. Even if, even if I don't really like the film, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm really carefully considering it before we pass on it. Mm-hmm. What are some that, that stand out? Let, let's get, get to some specifics then. I, I saw just on one of the interviews um, that you'd done, you mentioned Back to Me, Say Something Intelligent, The Procedure, which I just watched before. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what are some that, that stay with you? Because to me, that if it stays with you, there's got to be something in that that's just a bit special, you know. What, what are some of those for you? Oh, there's so many that's, that stay with me. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about some of our recent staff pick premieres. Um, mm. Let me just uh, kind of refresh my memory real quick before sure. I go down mm. a path that... I don't want to. Um, let's see. So, all right, I'm just pulling them up. So, actually, it you know, unfortunately, it's it's not on it's not on the platform right now because we 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 did a limited release of it. So maybe this is actually not even worth getting into. Mm-hmm. But one of the short films of, of the past two years that really has stuck with me is a short film called Home. Um, directed by Daniel Malloy. Mm-hmm. So we actually featured that on Staff Picks last week for a seven-day run exclusively mm-hmm. on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. Um, 
unfortunately due to different distribution requirements that you know they could only keep it up for seven days right. but we released it uh, in conjunction with world refugee day which was on june 20th mm-hmm. um and it's this really really powerful short film um, that basically takes the current refugee crisis and kind of flips it on his on its head where rather than have a Syrian family trying to get into the UK. You've got this British family uh, that has been thrust into the refugee crisis and is fleeing some un, unidentified threat back at home. And so they're trying to get they're trying to go east. So rather than having all the refugees go west, they're going east, and so they're thrust into this refugee crisis of their own. And it's it's incredibly powerful. It it. To be honest, a lot of people I know who've watched it, and this includes myself, feel kind of guilty when they watch it because what it does is it it elicits this emotional response that unfortunately you don't necessarily get when you watch the news or when you even watch documentaries about the actual real-life refugee crisis. And I would say that, and uh, to be blunt, I think it's because it's harder for Western audiences to relate to the current refu- the refugees that are suffering in the current refugee crisis because of cultural differences, because of lang- language differences, things like that. And I don't think that that's any fault of the viewer, but what's so powerful about this film is that it forces you to confront that and mm-hmm. say, why is it that when I see this British family get thrown into a refugee crisis... I'm feeling all these emotions that I don't feel when I turn on the nightly news and witness things that are actually happening in real life to real people. Mm. And there's something incredible, incredibly powerful about that. So not only does it, does it, I think not only do audiences come away from this film with a newfound sympathy or an increased level of sympathy where maybe they already were very sympathetic to the refugees that, that are, that are uh, suffering today, but it also forces us to confront some of our own biases mm. and some of our own blind spots as as human beings and world mm. citizens. Mm-hmm. So um, it's this really, yeah, it's a really powerful film directed by Daniel Malloy. I highly recommend that people check it out if they have the opportunity mm-hmm. to. Um, but let's. But I'd also like to just talk about some of um, you know our our recent staff pick premieres. Mm. Um, so we um, directed a. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm just getting. <laughs> Uh, again, um, so, um, one of our recent staff pick premieres was a, do you want to shift a little uh, bit? You've got the, the white behind you. Oh, sorry. Just a little bit twist. You'll be fine. No, this is good. Okay. So one of our most recent staff pick premieres was a short film called the giant, Mm -hmm. um, which was, uh, directed by this, um, this filmmaking collective that are based in Brooklyn and Portland, Oregon. Um, and it is a, it was our first 360. Oh, the 360. Um, yeah. I thought that rang a bell. Yeah. 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 Mm. So it was our first 360 staff pick premiere. Mm. So we actually, we launched um, 360 on Vimeo back in March, uh, coinciding with uh, South by Southwest. Mm. And so this was a really exciting opportunity for us to do an online premiere of a 360 film. We hadn't done that yet. Mm. And so the giant actually premiered at South by Southwest. So it's kind of, it's funny because it's, it's trajectory as a film has kind of held hands with Vimeo's trajectory as a platform for 360. So, you know, in the same way that we launched 360 at South by Southwest, they launched their film at South by Southwest. And now, you know, we've, uh, done their online premiere now. Mm. And so it's just this really neat, um, 
you know, shorts. It's pretty, it's pretty short. It's, I think, three or four minutes long. And it's basically a fable that they wrote about this giant who uh, discovers music and it destroys her. And then she's ultimately reborn as music. And I think what to me is really striking about it is um, I find that generally, as much as I I love VR and 360 and as impressed as I am by the experiences that I've done at different festivals where they have like a 360 section, I think that it's still a really, it's a real challenge for filmmakers to tell a Mm. linear story in the 360 space. Mm. Mm. And this film, perhaps better than any other that I've seen, utilizes 360 in a way that makes sense for telling a linear story. And part of that is you know, owed to the fact that they were able to animate it versus using like a, you know, a, a, a 360 mm. video camera, mm. or, yeah, 360 rig, mm. which presents all sorts of practical challenges for the filmmakers when they make, you know, something with a 360 video rig. Mm. But I think they were they were just clever about using the 360 space to kind of complement the story. Mm. Um, and mm. so I highly recommend that people take that, uh, take a look at that. Mm. Um, it's, you know, just very, you know, innovative filmmaking, you know, mm. the story, the story itself doesn't necessarily stick with me, but what sticks with me is the way that they use the format. Mm. And I think that other filmmakers are going to look to this film, you know, years down the road as one of the earlier pieces that successfully used the mm. format to tell a story. And I think mm. that that's really important because, like I said, I, th- I think that this is an ongoing struggle for filmmakers who are kind of experimenting with 360 and VR. Mm. All right, let me let me take you back, and you can mention other stuff picks if you like, but take me back to something that stuck with you from your childhood. So for me, you know, when I was in, you know, um, I don't know, I was probably six or seven years old, we had films that were shown to us, and, and there was this documentary called A City Awakens, and it was a pure observational documentary of a city waking up you know and it was for the first time it was like this world opened up to me of there was a, a street sweeper or a, you know a truck and a garbage guy and I, I thought wow there's all and and suddenly this enlightenment happened of you know there's there's other people doing other things in this world that I live in that I'm not aware of and now I am and I think that was the moment you know when film came alive to me as a way to explore another space and and experience something different so do you have you know a moment like that when when did you become excited sure, I mean, about on a films? very well, on, I mean, if I want to give you some very superficial memories of mine, like I, there, on Sesame Street, there was this uh, this segment that they showed once about how crayons get made, and I rem- and I just like have such vivid memories of yeah. that segment. It's actually on it's on YouTube. You can watch it there, mm-hmm. um, and that's like something that was is, is such a vivid memory from like my early years watching TV. I watched a lot of TV as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that probably doesn't won't surprise many people who know what I do professionally, but. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've thought about this a little bit and there's definitely, you know, there are definitely films that I watched on repeat growing up. I mean, if you look at like pretty much all of, you know, Spielberg's repertoire, you know, I was, I was a kid that grew up, I was like fed by Spielberg and watching, you know, E.T. and Indiana Jones and uh, Hook and, you know, even the other things that Steven Spielberg was just loosely connected with, like, you know, Goonies or uh, I think he was somehow involved in like The Land Before Time, uh, you know, Tiny Toons, things like that. But anyway, so I think Spielberg definitely kind of like set the tone for me in terms of my experience watching uh, film and television as a kid, I was very much like in that wheelhouse of 
I was, I was in that generation that Spielberg and, and his cohort were really targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, um, you know, a, a film, a, an experience for me that really stands out was I was probably 12 years old. I think I was in like seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And um, my social studies teacher, I'm trying to remember why we watched it. Oh, yeah, we were studying the American judicial system and, and law and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, he had us watch, uh, 12 angry men, the Sidney yeah. Lumet version. Of course. Fantastic. And, <laughs> and, and what's amazing to me after all these years is that mm-hmm. I remember I was like glued to the screen when mm-hmm. we watched 12 angry men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were to describe that film, just if you're just like read the synopsis and describe it to someone who hadn't seen it before, I think a 12 year old boy is probably the last person that they would think that that film would speak to. Yeah. Yet it did, yeah. and in in a really in a really deep way, and it's like one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that there's something so amazing that about the fact that Sidney Lumet was able to make this film back in you know it was 1955 yeah. or you know it was in the mid to late 50s, I think yeah. that spoke to a 12 year old Mm -hmm. 40 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, I think so few films stand the test of time in that way. I mean, obviously people, you know, grow up with certain films and they carry them with them. And in the way that, you know, you probably show films to your kids sometimes and Mm -hmm. they don't respond and you're kind of heartbroken because it's one of your favorite films and you're how, how can you not like this film? It's such a classic. Uh, I do think it's, I do think there are films that are able to break through Mm. to future generations. And for me, 12 angry men was one of those films. And I would imagine that I'm not unique in that sense. I don't think that there was anything specific to that film that spoke to 12 year old Sam Morrill in a way that it wouldn't speak to other 12 year olds. So I'd I'd, I'd be curious to talk to other people about their experience watching that. If anyone else had watched it at that age, but for me, um, I feel like, yeah, I mean, what, how a film, you know, how, how could a film be any more successful than that? You know, if it's still relevant to, someone that wasn't even in its target demographic to begin with right. a generation later. Yeah. That's amazing. It is incredible. Yeah. So what, so to me that speaks about, you know, what, what I'm partly passionate about too is, you know, film and its intersection with education. So being a teacher, I'm always, you know, I'm interested where those two overlap because I think that all film is educational. So I'm curious to get your opinion about where you see this this overlap as well, and and a couple of the ones that I picked out um, from Vimeo, one of them is um, mm-hmm. called "The Function of Music" with Jad Abumrad. Abumrad, yeah. that's amazing. Like I just watched that, and I just I, I can't even remember how I came. It was a staff pick, um, but I just thought, wow, it was it's a documentary. It's educational, mm-hmm. but it it attempts to answer just a couple of big questions: what is sound, what is music, and it just explores that and just just you know just plays with these big big ideas you know um it's fascinating so what that that's one that ended up in a staff pick um yeah absolutely yeah i mean i can i can speak to that film sure. but um so yeah jad abramrod actually is the co-host of a really popular radio show here in the uh, u.s called uh, radio lab right um it's yeah it's one of the most popular radio shows and podcasts uh, in america and mm. and 
he's all about sound like mm. that's his thing and so if you listen to radio lab i mean they, they cover all sorts of topics but like it tends to be you know have a science focus to it for sure and the sound design on radio lab is just is incredible and chad abumrad is the guy who does all the sound on it and he also kind of co-hosts it um yeah i think you know what i think video more than any art can kind of like trick you into learning something um you know it's one thing to read about music in a textbook where they kind of break it down you know and give you definitions and things but it's something entirely different to watch you know a, a really kinetic four minute short that uh that walks you through different types of music and you know the emotional response and you're you know sitting face to face with jad abenrod who really knows a thing or two about music and sound and has some has an interesting perspective on it so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very efficient method of teaching because, um, you know, you're working with, you know, visuals and, you know, video, you're working with visuals and, and sounds, um, to, to explain something. And so I think that, you know, you, it can be that much more powerful and, and compelling. Um, I definitely, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, I, I grew up watching a lot of TV and, mm. and, and some of the stuff that I watched was, you know, was secretly educational, you know, yes. I mean, and, and sometimes not so secretly, you know, it's like I watched Bill Nye, the science guy all the yeah. time yeah. growing yeah. up. Mm. And, uh, and, then, and I knew at the time when I was watching that they were trying to teach me something. Mm. Bill Nye was really entertaining. It was right. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I, and so I watched that, but then, you know, when you go back even further, like when you're really little, mm. you, you watch Sesame street, kids mm. who watch Sesame street, they have no idea mm. that there's some sort of ulterior motive here and that their parents are trying to instill them with That's like, right. you know, progressive urban values. Yeah. and teach them the alphabet at the same time yeah. but it's really it's a really effective tool for for you know getting through to kids um, and capturing their attention and capturing their imagination mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean video obviously can can be an incredible tool for education yeah. um you know in a very practical sense i use video tutorials all the time like mm-hmm. i uh, i went to to can back in may And it was my first time going. And when you go to the gala screenings there, you have to wear a tuxedo and you have to wear a bow tie. And I have never worn a bow tie before. I have no idea how to tie a bow tie. Maybe I wore a clip-on bow tie when I was a kid at my uncle's wedding or something like that. But, yeah, so, I mean, there was no question. I I wasn't going to go ask someone, hey, can you show me how to tie a bow tie? I immediately went online. I went on YouTube. And I I Googled, you know, bow tie, uh, you know, bow tie tutorials, <laughs> how to tie a bow tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched two of them and within 15 minutes I knew how to tie a bow tie. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah. Obviously for something as tactile as that, yeah. you know, video is, yeah, is, yeah. is a really good explainer. Yeah. But even for, you know, more uh, abstract concepts like music, like you were pointing mm-hmm. out with the Jada Rod mm-hmm. video, um, it can be an incredible tool for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I guess what you're talking about too in, in the tying the tie thing is is more instructional learning. You know, that's, I, mm-hmm. I want to learn, learn this specific detail, so I'm going to go for that. But I, I'm I'm excited about the kind of films that, you know, we see on Vimeo and at festivals because yep. they open up the mind to these bigger ideas. Um, just before the, there's this other one I mentioned in that line, but before I go there, I just want to ask you about one, the function of music. Um, did raise a question about suitability for different ages. So I think, I don't think there was anything particularly offensive, but some of the language in it, you'd probably go, oh, I don't know whether I'd show this to my, you know, my grade fives right. or fours or whatever. What, how do you decide when you're, when you're staff picking, you know, whether something, I know you have a mature tag you know mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what systems of catalog you know of what 
What's it called? Censorship policies do you have, I guess, and age suitability? Yeah, um, you know, historically, we've been pretty careful with staff picks not to offend the audience. Obviously, you know, Vimeo is available all around the world. Mm. People have all sorts of values and value sets and, and traditions. We don't want to offend people if, mm. if we can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, um, you know, we do have a core demographic on the site and that tends to be, you know, people, you know, between the ages of, you know, I'd say 26 and 40 um, tend to be uh, concentrated in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the core of our audience is not necessarily going to be offended by some dirty language here or there, even, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, sexual innuendo or even, mm-hmm. you know, like lovemaking scenes, things like that. Mm-hmm. That said, yeah, we have to have tools in place to make sure that if people don't want to see that, they mm-hmm. can avoid it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's where the mature content ratings come in. And that's yeah. something that we introduced, I think, like a year year and a half ago, some two years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is, you know, if something's marked flagged as mature, it won't show up in certain places. Yeah. Typically, if someone is logged out, if they're, it's their first time coming to Vimeo, that they won't see something that has been flagged as mature. Mm-hmm. And then also any user can go into their mature content, uh, like settings and s- stipulate what they do or don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recently we've definitely loosened up quite a bit in terms of what we're willing to promote via staff picks. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized, you know, over the years that one of the distinct advantages to being an ad-free platform as Vimeo is that we're not beholden to advertisers in a way that other platforms are. And by not being beholden to advertisers, we can get away with more. We can, we can have some foul language. There can be some sex, there can be some violence and we don't have, you know, Procter and Gamble breathing down our neck about it. So you know, I think that we we view that as a real advantage and as a real privilege yeah. as as a site, and we want to lean into that. But like I said, we want to take certain actions to make sure that people aren't you know um, really offended by what it is that we're putting out there for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I was reading a little bit. I was um, stalking you on uh, LinkedIn and reading a bit about you, and and uh, noticed that you speak two languages. So you speak Spanish. And someone had mentioned that you were always able to find a Mexican, uh, you know, fast food outlet or something like that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I thought, there's something going on there. And and I, a lot of the uh, the viewers to my you know my my vodcast and and the podcast are teachers and teachers of uh, English to people who are you know non-native speakers, etc. So I was just curious, you know, how in your own learning of Spanish, you know, um, did you use film? Is that something that you yeah, I think so. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Uh, I actually, I, I made a film that was in Spanish um, once, and I'm trying to think of, of of growing up how much Spanish language television. Well, you know, I remember, you know, growing up. Um, I started taking Spanish when I was in fifth grade, so when I was about ten years old, mm-hmm. and I took it all the way through mi- middle school and high school and into college a bit, and I was and I got to travel a fair amount to Latin America growing up. And I was surrounded by a lot of Spanish just in general growing up in New York. And my parents both speak Spanish, um, even though they're not native speakers. Um, but anyway, there's, yeah, like I said, a lot of Spanish around me. Mm-hmm. I think um, when I was in school, when I was in high school, <laughs> one of the things that we used to do is we would watch telenovelas. 
which is really fun because they're like obviously like really salacious and over the top. And they also tend to speak, you know, pretty standard Latin American Spanish. It's pretty easy to understand. Mm. They're not, they're, they're, they're not speaking, uh, at a very high level because it's meant to appeal to the broadest audience possible. So yeah, so I I definitely had some experience watching, uh, telenovelas. (laughs) And I remember I, 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 um, when I was in high school, I did a, I did a homestay one summer in Costa Rica with a Costa Rican family. Mm -hmm. And my host father was a huge fan of this show called Sabado Gigante, Mm -hmm. which no longer exists. Unfortunately, I think they they took it off the air, Mm -hmm. but uh, I think just recently, like, uh, like a few months ago, actually, or a year ago. Mm -hmm. And that was shot in Miami and it was hosted by this really famous Chilean uh, television personality. And it was just so over the top. It was like a cross between, you know, like, Saturday Night Live and The Price is Right and like <laughs> Oprah and like it, it just made no sense. It was a total variety show. Johnny yeah. Carr. I don't know. Yeah. Lots of lots of influences. And mm. I used to watch that with him and that was really fun. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and the, well, the reason I'm interested in that too, as I say, because a lot of English language teachers that, that are interested in, in short films. And, and I picked, I was trying to find it as sort of a third you know, um, short film to recommend. I came across Red Rabbit, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's not even red. I thought I, I love the title of that. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but just that I, one of the things, and, and I only choose that as an example. I mean, it, it was well made. It's sort of not something that's going to stay with me forever, but it was just a nice little short film that it was dialogue free. Now, there's there's a friend yeah. of mine, Kieran Don- Donaghy, who teaches English in, um, I think it's Portugal, Um and, you know, he has a site where he has notes and he is a regular staff pick, you know, he's devotee. He loves everything that you guys find, but he particularly likes those without any spoken word because yeah. you can tell a story, you can watch something and you can talk about what it is in the, the foreign language and then talk about it in English. You can unpack it in so many different ways. So... Um, I just, I guess, I was just curious to know if you knew how many people were using short films from Vimeo in an educational context like that, and and what it opens up for teachers in that way. You know, it's such to a be honest, rich vein. Yeah, what I'm what I'm most familiar with is the way film schools use uh, staff picks and shorts from Vimeo mm. as as references mm. in their courses mm. and. That that I know at least anecdotally. I don't have research to back it up, but yeah. I, I do. I do talk to a lot of mm-hmm. filmmakers who teach on the side, and I know that they they look to staff picks and encourage their students watch staff picks regularly as mm-hmm. as a source of inspiration, mm-hmm. as a way to kind of see what sort of techniques people are experimenting with. Um, you know, I think it, it's a huge resource in that regard. Mm-hmm. In terms of how it can be applied to just kind of like broader humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to say, but mm-hmm. I do think that there's something to be said for these kind of bite size mm-hmm. videos that can be incorporated into, you know, a 45 minute class plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that shorts are ideal for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, you know, going back to the, the topic of like, you know, webcam videos, I have a hard time seeing someone incorporating that into their curriculum. Whereas, mm. yeah, something like Red Rabbit, which, uh, you know, I think Red Rabbit would, would fit really nicely into like a course on psychology or something like that, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's kind of about how we all have, uh, you know, these secrets that we keep from one another that we assume that no one else could possibly relate to, mm-hmm. or that, you know, no one else could possibly 
uh, be harboring this, this sort of feeling that they don't, um, they don't express. But then, of course, when everything comes crashing down, you realize that we all have a red rabbit or I guess it's a gray rabbit and a <laughs> raccoon yeah, you know, right. that, we're, that we're hiding yeah, you know, at, yeah, at home. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, I definitely think that there are applications for, for all of these shorts. And, and I think, you know, the, given that they are short and... Uh, you know, in many cases, like you said, you know, nonverbal. So you could maybe, you know, bring it in for uh, non-native speakers or maybe children who haven't developed, you know, speaking skills uh, quite as much. Um, I think that there are certainly applications there. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I, I'm, I, I cannot profess to be anyone who knows anything about education. So maybe <laughs> I'm totally wrong, but that's, that's my hunch. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And that's what I love about them too. Wait, do you think short films can change the world? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that film Home, I'm telling you, uh, that, that, that Daniel Malloy film that I was talking about earlier, that is certainly a film that could change the world. I would... I would pay good money to have, you know, uh, you know, a lot of my fellow citizens here in the U.S., you know, watch a film like that or even watch, um, uh, you know, just any short documentary about the refugee crisis. Have them watch that and then reassess their position on our country's attitude uh, and policy towards refugees. I, I really think it would be hard to watch a short, you know, there's a short documentary called Refuge um, by a documentary, a documentarian named uh, Matthew Furpo. Um, there's another one that was in our best of the year. I think it's called 4.1 Miles. Mm-hmm. Um, it was put out by the New York Times. These are really, really powerful documentaries about the refugee crisis. And I challenge anyone who is opposed to you know, not just the U.S., but any country lending a helping hand to these people to watch a film like that and then look me in the eyes and say that they they stand by their, their previous position. I, I just don't think it's possible. Mm. And so, yeah, in that regard, I think short films can absolutely change the world. I think that in, you know, in a mere 10 minutes, you can, you know, learn something about a crisis that's half a world away that you didn't know anything about previously. And it can absolutely shape you know, your decisions as a citizen, you know, who, who, who you decide to vote for, you know, how you decide to, you know, carry yourself as a, a citizen of the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I highly encourage people to engage with short documentaries in particular yeah. um, if, if we're talking about changing the world. Yeah. Look, I've got so many other more questions I could ask and there's probably... I could go on for ages, but um, I've got one other question that some uh, a media teacher in Australia said, I would love to know this for my students. How would a keen media student pursue a career at Vimeo? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, could, I mean, I my him, experience... How could I get a job at Vimeo? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it starts by going to the jobs page. So if you go to <laughs> vimeo.com slash jobs, there's yeah. a whole slew of, yeah. of positions that, that are that are posted. We, we are hiring. We are mm. growing as a company. Mm. So there are certainly opportunities out there. Yeah. Um, to be honest, like I, you know, recommending that people, you know, set their sights on video curation as their full-time gig. I'm not sure that that's the highest percentage play that I can offer people. Um, I do think that if you really would like to work for Vimeo or any website, the number one best way to make that happen is to learn how to code. Mm. There's huge demand for developers um, and engineers 
um, here at, at Vimeo and I know every website under the sun, there just aren't enough engineers out there for the amount that we need to build as, mm-hmm. as websites. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I wish to be honest, like, even though I'm, I'm, you know, I tend to be more creatively inclined. Um, I would have, you know, done a great service for myself, uh, as a student, had I taken some computer science and I'm even considering, you know, you know, learning some coding as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that useful. And, um, and in fact, I would argue that if you are creatively inclined, that's even more of a reason to learn how to code because the, de- the developers and engineers that can kind of combine, you know, left brain and right brain are the ones that excel and, mm-hmm. and really thrive. Um, so it's, it's being able to merge those two inclinations, being, you know, a, cr- a creatively oriented person who also can, uh, can code and, and, and focus on the more analytical side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's just an incredible combination of skills mm-hmm. that few people possess. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. if you, even if you're thinking of going to art school, like mm-hmm. I would seriously consider learning how to code because if you can, if you're a great artist and you're an engineer, like you will get any job you want. I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a secret. I, I've actually got a computer science degree and then I went to film, to film school and uh, I, I watch all my, um, Friends that uh, stayed in IT and they're, they're, they're doing quite well for themselves. And I don't know, I'm enjoying my life, but I'm not saying I'm rolling in money. <laughs> well, but that's the go. most important thing. You're enjoying your life. so <laughs> I am, I am. Is there anything else that uh, that you, you wanted to share before we wrap it up? Because as I say, we could go on for ages. And I appreciate oh, man, your time. I, yeah, I, could, I could go on and on and on, but <laughs> I, I do. I feel like we covered a fair amount. We and, have. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I just yeah. really appreciate the opportunity to, to mm. talk with you, Richard. It's been mm. great. Mm. Thank you. I'll leave you to the rest of your busy day and your your busy busy week. Yeah. All right. Thanks for taking the time. All right. My pleasure. Take care. All the film links are now on LinkedIn and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube. This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.